Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Matt. I am your speaker this morning. I think I know most of you, uh, but if I don't, good to meet you. My wife, Laura, my two kids, and I have been coming here uh, to Lamb for about a year and a half now, and, and what a blessing this place is that we can be here this morning, uh, even in the rain. So you all are the warriors coming out in the elements, and we're really glad that we can be here with you this morning to worship God. Advent is a season of waiting. Our culture finds this very odd. Our culture tells us that on the day after Thanksgiving, we should immediately enter into the frenzy of celebration uh, that is the Christmas season. And in, in the minds of our, the culture around us, the Christmas season runs from the day after Thanksgiving when you go early to the Black Friday sales. And it ends somewhere around 10 a.m., on Christmas morning when all the presents have been opened. That's the way that the culture around us has done things, but for centuries, the church has advised a different path. For centuries, the church has said to us that in order to properly celebrate Christmas, you need a season of preparation. You need a season of, of silence and reflection, and you need a season of waiting. You can't just rush right in you need to wait for a while first if you're going to really experience uh, what the Christmas season is all about. So that's why we say that Advent is a season of waiting. Now, I am a certified geek and nerd. I have been ever since I was a teenager. My mother ever comes to visit, she can show you the pictures. Um, the glasses are thick. Uh, the clothing is odd-colored and odd-fitting of me as a teenager. But because I am a geek, when I think of waiting, there are two different things that typically come into my mind. Um, and this is going to display at some level my geekiness, but that's all right, because you're all friends. The first thing that I think of is a play that was written by a Frenchman named Samuel Beckett in the uh, late 1940s, immediately after World War II. The play is called Waiting for Godot. Uh, and if you haven't read it, you should. It is not a Christian work of literature, but it's an important work of literature. In the play, the entire action takes place uh, in front of a tree. There are only four characters in the entire play, and two of the characters are these two fellows who are standing around the tree, and the entire play is them waiting for this fellow named Godot to arrive. Godot has been saying for a long time that he's coming that day, and then every day, towards the end of the day, Godot sends a messenger and says, oh, you know what, it's not today after all. Maybe I'll come tomorrow. And so these two characters stand around the entire time talking about whether Godot's going to come, talking about things that don't really have anything to do with anything, um, and then at the, end, at the end of each act of the play, the messenger comes and says, you know, Godot's not actually coming. Maybe tomorrow uh, Godot will come. And then the next scene opens, and they're back at the tree again, continually waiting for Godot. At the end of the play, they are fr so frustrated that Godot has never showed up that they're not even sure that Godot exists, they say. They're so um, bowled down by the meaninglessness of their wait for Godot that they actually decide at the end of the play that they're going to kill themselves but they don't have any rope. And so one says to the other, well, I guess we should go get some rope. And the other one says, well, I, I guess so. But they don't even have the motivation to go get the, the rope to hang themselves. They just sit there because there's no meaning to any of it. And the author was quoted as saying, he's not sure that Godot even exists. 
or will ever show up for these two fellows who were sitting there waiting. I had to read the play in my high school English class. That's how I know about it. That's the first thing that I think of. The second thing that I think of, and I'm not trying to be political, uh, you can think of, you, of what, you, what you want about this, but I remember a famous speech that President Obama gave when he was still Senator Obama, and he was campaigning, and he won uh, the Super Tuesday primaries in his first race against Senator Clinton. And he was giving this inspirational speech about the need for change, and he gave this famous line in his speech. He said, we are the ones we have been waiting for. We are the ones that we have been waiting for. In other words, we can save ourselves. We have it in ourselves to do what needs to be done to accomplish whatever change you think is necessary to happen. So on one hand, you've got this play which is nihilistic and, and existentialist. It's all meaningless, the play says. It, not, no one's ever going to show up. Nothing is ever really going to be solved. Nothing is ever really going to change. And on the other side, you've got President Obama. We're the savior. We're the ones we're waiting for. And what I want to suggest to you today is that neither one of those two things is the way to think about Advent waiting. The way that we learn to think about Advent waiting is by studying the experience of the people of the Old Testament who were waiting. The Old Testament gives us this rich framework to understand how to go about waiting during the season of Advent. There are three things that I want you to think about this morning. The first thing is, who were they waiting for? These people of the Old Testament, who? The second thing is, what? What were they waiting for? And then finally, the third thing is what I'm calling the executory promise of Advent. Now, executory is a lawyer word, which is why I'm using it. And none of you know what that lawyer word means. But you need not worry, because I am a law professor and when we get to that third point, I will explain to you what it means, all right? What, who were they waiting for? What were they waiting for? And finally, the executory promise of Advent. Okay, uh, who were they waiting for? That's the first thing. Um, the children of Israel, the Israelites, thought of themselves as part of a story. Um, and they conceived their existence in terms of what had God had done in the past and what God was promising to do for them and for the world in the future. Have you ever read a novel, and in the novel, the plot takes this weird twist in the middle of the novel, and you read the twist, and you go, oh, I don't think I like that. That's not what I was expecting. How will the author ever get out of this weird plot twist that the author has created? Or to relate great things to small, and again, remember that I said as I was before, a certified geek, the single best episode of Star Trek The Next Generation was called The Best of Both Worlds. It was a two-parter at the end of, a, of a, like a cliffhanger at the end of the season. And at the end of the first part, Captain Picard, the star of the show, is absorbed by the evil Borg aliens. And the episode ends. And when you look uh, back at the accounts of the writing of that episode, they wrote the first part of the episode before they wrote the second part, and they had no idea how they were going to end the story. Uh, they had written themselves in a corner. The star of the show had been absorbed by aliens, and they wrote it and showed it, and then they sat around and said, oh, what have we done? Uh, how do we get out of this? That's how the children of Israel were feeling as Isaiah chapter 40 opens. They knew that they were part of a story. God made the world. 
Uh, we messed the world up terribly in the Garden of Eden. There was a fall. There was sin. Creation was broken. We were broken. God said, I'm not going to let my good creation get ruined. He picked out Abraham and he said, you, through you, through your family, through your descendants, I'm going to fix everything that got messed up. And then he, did, he started that process. Abraham's descendants became numerous. They were slaves in Egypt. God did the exodus. He got them out of slavery. He established them in their land. He said, through you, we're going to fix all this. We're going to fix creation. We're going to fix what went wrong. And then what happened? Well, the Israelites messed everything up terribly, majorly. They started worshiping idols. Uh, they, they didn't follow God's law. They didn't engage in the mission that God had, had um, established for them. And so God left that's a harsh thing to, to think about, but it's true. Ezekiel, the prophet, had this vision of God's presence lifting up from the temple and heading out. And they knew that God had left, and the Babylonians had come and burnt the temple down and destroyed the city. And so the Israelites are saying to themselves, as Isaiah chapter 40 opens, Whoa, this was a plot twist that we didn't expect. The story has gotten off track. How is God going to fix this? How is it, how God has written himself into a corner with this plot twist? And we don't know what is coming next, and we're waiting. But what are we waiting for? The fundamental problem of the Old Testament is what happens when the rescuers mess up so badly that they need rescuing themselves. And that's where we are at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 40. Who were they waiting for? Well, look at verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 40. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of my favorite politician. Uh, prepare the way of a merely human Messiah. It's not what it says. In the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. We're even skipping down to verse 9. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up and fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. They knew at some level that the story had gotten so off track that the only way it could ever be fixed was for Yahweh himself to come himself and fix it. They were looking for God to return. Ezekiel even had another vision of God's presence returning to the temple. If you look at the very last verse of the entire New Testament, look at what it says, the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. They had an expectation that Yahweh himself would return. Now, they also had an expectation that, that the Messiah would be coming, right? And, and so it wasn't entirely clear always in their minds, okay, the Messiah is coming, but we know Yahweh is coming also, and we don't know how those two things are going to fit together. But that's why the gospel reading this morning is not just a throwaway passage. It's not just this weird introduction we have to get by uh, until we can have the action start, when Jesus starts healing people and saying things. No, no, this introduction uh, that Travis read is actually really critical to understanding what Mark is trying to tell us about this story. 
Mark quotes this Isaiah passage that we read in verse 3, right? He said, this, it's written in Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh, make his path straight, right? That's the Old Testament reading, that's what we read. And then, when you skip down to verse 9, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. The church from the very beginning has understood that Jesus is God. And it's not just because he went around calling himself the Son of God. Actually, that didn't even mean God to the Jews until much later. No, it's because the idea that God himself would return was written into the fabric of the story itself. And that's what they understood was happening. Both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right, the two major groups that we read about later in the Gospels, were distorting this hope. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, right? They really didn't believe in supernatural things hardly at all. Their philosophy was, well, it's all meaningless anyway. There's nothing after you die. We might as well use the gold and silver vessels. We might as well dress in the nice clothes. We might as well enjoy power now because it's all meaningless. They're like the people in the play. The Pharisees, on the other hand, said, were more like what President Obama said. If we're just holy enough, if we just intensify uh, the way that we keep the law, if we just tithe the, the spices also and not merely the money, then, then we can get the story back on track. They thought that they actually were the ones that they were waiting for. But the right understanding is, what were they waiting for? Well, they were waiting for God. All right, that's the first thing. Second thing, what were they waiting for? What were they waiting for? When God returned, what did they think was going to happen? And again, this was a thought that, that in many ways got distorted by the way that they were, they were kind of analyzing this. Many of them thought that when, when Yahweh finally did return, that he was going to kill all the Gentiles, put the Jews in charge of the world, and get rid of the Romans especially, because they were especially awful. So they kind of conceived of this as some sort of military exercise to reestablish God's physical kingdom, and especially to get the Gentiles out. That's not really the way the texts conceive of this process, though. Again, look at, uh, back at the Old Testament reading. Look at verse 1. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins, which is an idiom which means that the sins were taken care of. And if you look in the gospel reading at what John described that he was doing, in verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. They weren't waiting for a political revolution. They were waiting for their iniquity to be paid for. They were waiting for their sins to be forgiven. Now, what did this mean to them? We as Americans tend to think of this like we tend to think of many things very individualistically. All right? We think about our particular personal sins that we're aware of, and we think to ourselves, yeah, those sins need to be forgiven. Right? I was mean to my wife last night. That was a sin. I need that particular sin to be forgiven. Um, I, I yelled at my secretary because she did something wrong. Okay, that was a sin. I was unkind to my secretary, and so I need that particular sin to be forgiven. We tend to think of it like that. Uh, and that's not an entirely wrong way to think about it because you have sinned. 
And yes, you do have individual sins, and, and those sins do need to be forgiven. It is not less than that, but what I'm suggesting to you is actually so much more than that. Do you think that when these folks went out to the wilderness to see John, uh, who was wearing weird clothing and eating locusts and shouting stuff that was hard to understand, do you think that they went out there to get baptized because they were, felt bad that they were mean to their wife the night before? Is that what was going on here, really? Probably not. What they needed was the story to get back on track. They felt very keenly still the exile. Uh, even though they had returned from the land, they felt it. They knew, they knew it deep down in their hearts that despite all the reforms they had tried to make, despite all of the uh, efforts that they had gone through, that God had not returned to the temple. Ezekiel saw him leave, but he had not come back. And what they needed was for their sins to be forgiven so that God would come back and this story of getting creation redeemed could resume. Would that mean righteousness? Oh yeah. Would that mean some political changes? Yeah, probably. But that wasn't at its most fundamental what they needed. They needed the restoration of God acting, of God intervening once again in history in the way that he had done before the exile, so that this story could resume and that the problems of creation, the sin of creation, the way that we broke, could be fixed. They were waiting for the, the story to get back on track. They were not waiting primarily for an individual renewal. Did they need that? Sure, just like you do. It's not less than that, but it's more. They were waiting for the story of creation's rescue to be renewed. Okay, that's the second thing. The third thing is this, the executory promise of Advent. Again, it's a lawyer word. Lawyers talk about executory contracts. An executory contract is a contract where everybody signed it, it's a valid contract, and the people have started to do what they're supposed to do under the contract, but they haven't finished it. It's not that the contract has been breached. No, 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 nobody's done anything wrong. It's just in process, all right? So if I sign a contract with you, I'm going to buy your house. And that's what we've written down, we've signed. Uh, I'm going to give you a security deposit for the house, right? So, and the contract says that I have to do that. So we have each started doing what we're supposed to do under the contract. I have turned over the security deposit. But the contract says we're not going to close, we're not going to finish the contract until January 15th. If that's the case, then what we have right now is an executory contract. I haven't breached it. I don't have to, to close until January 15th. I've started doing what I'm supposed to do. I've given you the security deposit. And at some point, we will finish performance under the contract. Until then, the contract is executory. So I'm talking to you about the executory promise of Advent. What do I mean by that? Well, the Israelites were waiting, and there came a time as we see in the gospel reading, that their waiting came to an end. God did return to Zion. God did return to the temple. The prophecy of Isaiah 40 was fulfilled. Jesus came. He suffered. He died. Uh, he, he made it possible for their for sins to be forgiven. 
uh, people who turn to him in repentance and faith can experience that. The exile came to an end. God intervened. There was a second exodus. He did what he promised. His spirit came. Uh, his kingdom was reestablished in the church. His saints are reigning. As the psalm said, righteousness and peace kissed one another because God's righteousness was satisfied, and at the same time, Jesus, through his sacrifice, made peace. So the story got back on track. So if the story got back on track, and if we're reigning with Jesus right now, why, when we look around, does everything feel so awful? Why do we experience death, death of people we love, why do we experience pain? Why do we experience want? Why do we experience suffering? Why do relationships seem so hard? Why does everything still seem broken? Well, it's because the promise is executory. The implementation has begun. Nobody's in breach, but the promise isn't yet complete. And we can learn about how to handle this situation by meditating on how the Israelites handled their situation. Who are we waiting for? Well, some people say that we're waiting for nothing, that we're all fools, that we're those characters in that play. And you can see that a little bit in the New Testament passage uh, that we read, right? Uh, where Peter is noting that even in the first century, there were complaints. Where's God? Why hasn't he come back yet? Why is he taking so long? What's the delay? Maybe he's not coming back at all. We could go off in the direction of wondering whether we're waiting for Godot. Or are we waiting for ourselves? Can we, through our, through our very own efforts, save ourselves? Can we, through our own efforts, without God's help and intervention, fix everything that's wrong? Maybe the problem is a lack of motivation, right? Could we go off in that direction? Brothers and sisters, neither one of those directions is going to help us. We're waiting for Jesus. We're waiting for God to return just as they waited for God to return. I was an Awana clubber. Some of you know what that is. And as an Awana clubber, I learned Titus chapter 2. I had to memorize it. We're waiting, in the words of the old King James Version, for that glorious appearing, the great day of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay. Does that mean that Jesus is absent? Well, there is a sense we know that in which Jesus is with us, right? If you're very quiet, you can hear him. He's with us every Sunday in the bread and the wine. But some of you may have noticed that um, physical touch is a love language of mine. I try not to freak people out. But I often feel that what I really need is to give Jesus a hug. And I can't do that because he's not with us in that sense. One day he will be. That's what we're waiting for. And when he comes, when God once again intervenes in the story, when God once again acts, even though it seems like it's taking him a long time, he will bring the story to a climax. He's promised and all of creation will be redeemed. Now, is this waiting hard? Oh, yeah. This waiting is really excruciating, actually, sometimes, if we want to be honest with one another about it. 
But Advent teaches us how to do that. That's why it's important. As we wait uh, for Christmas, we learn patience. We learn patience with God and we learn patience with one another. As we spend Advent not rushing into an orgy of consumerism, but meditating on waiting, uh, we learn lessons from the Israelites' wait. We learn not to turn to meaninglessness. We learn not to depend on ourselves. We learn to be patient with God. Because again, the promise is not breached. It is merely executory. Brothers and sisters, let us wait well for God and for the healing of ourselves and the world around us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.